actual Chinese food yeah. flung into space. From China. Cooked from China directly to your door. Welcome to REPOV, a show in which we record the conversations we're already having amongst ourselves, our entrepreneurs, and industry leaders for you to listen in on. Hello, everyone. This is Raju Rishi. I'm joined here with my partner, Jason Black, and we will be uh, today interrogating our third partner, Will Porteous, about his various experience with space and space technology companies. Hopefully uh, interrogation, but no torture. To be determined. There's a vote at the end. Based on the number of clicks that we get, we'll find out. So William, this will be a fun one because I know you've had tons of experience around this domain. But I'll I'll go ahead and kick it off with the first question. It's a rather lengthy question, but I'm going to go for it. So for decades, space has been the exclusive province of governments and the military and a few large companies. We think that NASA and the Apollo program, the space shuttle, satellites for weather, for spying and communications. At what point did this area become accessible to venture-based startups and why? Thanks, Raju. So you're right. I have had uh, 10 years to get ready uh, to talk about this stuff today. And it was 10 years ago that we started doing work around opportunities in the space sector. And at the time, it cost $100 million to buy a rocket to get to space. The most reliable vehicle at the time was something called a Vega from Ariane Space, a French company. And each launch cost the operator $100 million bucks. And um, it was that kind of cost barrier that meant that everything that went on that rocket or on the satellite that was being launched had to be a proven technology. And the reality at that time was that the cost of getting to space had actually made it too expensive to try new things. The innovation cycle in the space sector had slowed down to a crawl. And we at RRE started looking at the components of the, the sort of world-class satellites at the time. And we, when we realized that the microprocessor families that were going up on these satellites uh, were basically the equivalent to Pentium II from the early 90s, 20 years earlier, uh, that's when we realized that there was an enormous opportunity in this sector. What happened is that the, the, um, what we call the rideshare market really began to open up. So SpaceX gets a lot of attention for bringing innovation to the launch market in the form of new reusable vehicles. But a Falcon 9 still costs 65 million bucks if you want to buy one. It was really the emergence of the rideshare market or, or secondary launch wait, market. Wait, wait, I got to stop you there. You mean I can get a rocket to my door? You can have a, a, a Falcon 9 delivered for a, a mere $65 million. Oh, my God. Okay, fine. <laughs> And they're available used too. You know, if you want a, 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 reusable, a reusable rocket that's been to space once or twice, you can, you can get one for cheaper. But right. uh, well, well, I'm going to give you five star for that. Five star rating. <laughs> but we digress. Okay. So the, the truth is what really opened up the sector was uh, what we call the secondary launch market. That market was actually pioneered by Spaceflight Industries, an RRE portfolio company, that essentially built a travel agency, uh, buying excess capacity on rockets, and then reselling it to smaller satellite operators that were flexible on when they went to orbit. It was sort of like buying a seat on an airline and not being totally sure when your flight was going to go. 
But it meant that companies like Spire and Black Sky in our portfolio could get to space within the resources they raised in a venture round. So suddenly getting to space was much easier and cheaper. This opened the way for engineers to tinker more with innovative approaches when they were designing and building things that were going to go into space. And the risks of failure were suddenly lower. It also opened up a path to, to build distributed capabilities in space. That is to say, constellations of many small satellites. That's awesome. I actually pretty exciting, you know, to see it innovate at that level. And, uh, you know, in venture, we always think that every sector at some point in time gets reinvented with opportunities for, you know, nice returns. It's amazing to see it happening in space for, and, and it's obviously been happening for some quite some time. So, so let me ask you a, a follow-on question to this, uh, Will. You recognize these trends. How did you go about thinking which areas were appropriate for investment and which areas probably we should stay away from? Well, so for a firm like ours, that's an interesting question, right? Because we knew we needed to find a way to do things in a cost-efficient way that fit within the model of an early-stage venture capital and. What we saw in the satellite sector was the application of open computing architectures that we had seen on Earth over the last 30 years. And we realized that more and more value was going to be defined in software and that hardware would increasingly become a commodity. And we realized that with satellites and the, the small uh, secondary launch opportunities, that we could, we could create capability and begin to generate revenue in sectors like weather forecasting and maritime uh, data, and that we could we could build some capability, get it into space, begin generating revenue, and then raise more money to build more capability in a in a cycle that's very familiar in the venture model in other sectors. By contrast, we looked at opportunities in the launch market, and we realized that the upfront capital costs just weren't going to be a fit for us. There was way too much science and technical risk, long cycles to get to commercial flight readiness. Now, our view on this notwithstanding, a lot of other investors went into this area. I think that there have been close to 100 rocket companies created over the last 10 years. We've met with many of them. And Frankly, we still don't believe that you can create the kind of sustainable advantage through technology that will give you a more valuable business over time in the rocket sector, unless you're playing at the level of someone like SpaceX. And I've been a board member of multiple satellite companies where we've made decisions to buy launch capacity, either to buy rockets outright or to buy slots on other people's rockets. And the things that you care about, reliability, schedule predictability, access to a desired orbit, actually matter a lot more than innovation and cost. Um, this issue is sort of like asking someone, do you want to fly on their new plane, right? Uh, most people prefer to fly on the proven ones and those that have been flown over and over and over again. That's the issue for a lot of the new rocket companies, and that's part of the reason we've stayed away from it. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you're thinking about it. These are really important topics for venture. You know, and our fund size is different than some of the really behemoth funds. So we have to think about the sectors that make sense for at the level of capitalization that we can afford. So where are we in the in terms of commercialization of space? And and more importantly, when are we going to see ad tech up there? You know, like real good. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Tesla sent the car up and that's kind of cool. But like, are we are we far 
along in the commercialization side of things, or are we just sort of at the tip of the iceberg? Well, I think you, we're, we're kind of in the what I'll call the second era of space innovation, uh, in the sense that if the first era was dominated by governments and then big satellite operators, we're now into an era where space is going to be accessible to everyone. And the real parallel here is if you imagine the network equipment market in the mid-90s. Now, Reggie, I think you were you were probably at Bell Labs then or running international for Lucent. Oh, man, the good old days, the good old days. So the old days are back again in space. And when you think back on the equipment vendors from that period like Cisco and Nortel and Lucent and Siemens and others, we're seeing massive demand for, for their capabilities. Um, they were building out the network infrastructure to support the the coming e-commerce. That's a lot of where we are today in the space market. A huge amount of basic infrastructure is being built. Every time we launch a satellite, we are adding another node on the network. That node includes processing, memory, storage, networking, and power. It may be associated with a particular company and application, but it represents another unit of capacity. We're essentially wrapping the planet in compute fabric and much of this infrastructure is built around an open architecture with software-defined capabilities, so it can be deployed to support a variety of applications going forward. In the future, we won't think about this infrastructure layer much, and we will take for granted the fact that it produces a wide variety of data and insights and supports diverse applications. You know, there's a lot in common. I'm, I, my, I have a network, I'm a network geek, you know, Bell Labs and all that kind of stuff, and there's a lot of similarities here, man. Like, you know, those big heavy iron switches ultimately became highly distributed, number one. And number two, you know, they became very software intensive. And it was almost like, you know, we just lost that that whole element of it. It seems like that's actually happening in space as well. So really cool. And I, and I, I, I naturally see that parallel. Can we just switch gears to SpaceX? You mentioned that earlier. There's kind of a behemoth. They're, you know, have scale and cloud. They do, do the launch side and the communication side of the space industry with their rockets and Starlink. I mean, how do you think about SpaceX? And are they going to be a positive force? Are they going to be a negative force? Do you think they're going to shut out competitors? Do you think they're going to allow innovation to occur? You know, it's, it feels very monopolistic in some ways, but I think they're, they are powerful enough to you know, change the trajectory of small and big companies. I mean, what are your thoughts around that business? Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's one of the crucial questions in this whole sector. So from, from our standpoint, SpaceX has been a massive enabler of this new era of innovation. And in some, in, in some respects, it's sort of shown the way. Uh, when NASA gave SpaceX the ISS resupply contract in 2016, they essentially guaranteed the financial viability of a new launch platform. And um, if you look at the history of the space industry, there's actually never been a, a launch capability that wasn't essentially supported by a sovereign government in the form of a contract like that one or in the, in the form of subsidies. And so that NASA-SpaceX relationship is fundamental to this new era. And, and SpaceX has showed everyone the importance of total vertical integration in the sector. Um, and with Starship, the largest, most powerful rocket that has ever been flown, it's, it's bigger and more powerful than NASA's space launch, space launch system, more powerful than Saturn V, which went to the moon. They are redefining the ec economics of what it costs to get things in space. 
I think that that's basically going to be a massive enabler for uh, the next year of innovation. And I think that SpaceX will likely continue to reserve some of the biggest opportunities for itself, Starlink being uh, the most obvious one. But there's a lot of room to innovate and build companies in this new ecosystem. That's it's just fascinating, actually. What about the other sort of massive players in the industry that I think people are nervous about, which are governments, right? Important partners, you know, because a lot of, you know, sort of regulatory aspect of this is controlled by governments. They're obviously customers of the space industry, but you you think they're going to partner with startups? You think they're going to create challenges to get companies out you know, out and launched? How do you see them playing out in all of this? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think in thinking about this topic, you kind of have to separate out the U.S. government from almost everyone else in the world. The U.S. government is a leading customer of all of our space companies. And if you look at kind of the recent era, U.S. government research dollars have underwritten a huge amount of the innovation that these companies are built on. But the thing is, The U.S. space program and the U.S. government's commitment to primacy in space is is frankly admired by many other countries around the world. And that has translated into a lot of interest in these new space companies. And so when we talk about government as a customer, there's the U.S. government on one hand, and then there are these foreign governments that are eagerly engaging with innovative space companies because they see benefits both strategically and economically. And we're, we're, we're past a, a point in time where these capabilities can somehow be uh, restricted. Uh, these capabilities move across borders quite easily. And foreign governments are realizing today that they can acquire the powers of a superpower on much more reasonable terms than they, they have in the past. And so we see tremendous engagement from governments as customers around the world wanting to uh, onboard these capabilities. And just to, you know, play on that a little bit, any any sort of obstacles from governments around the world? Well, there's there there are regulatory considerations, spectrum considerations, there are uh, fears of uh, the need to control those assets in times of conflict, but by and large the conversation has been pretty constructive. That, that's awesome to hear. You know, in venture, we always sit there and say, uh, this this industry sells to government or this business sells to government. So there's a little bit of apprehension around sales cycles. But in, in this case, it sounds like a really, really valuable tool. All right. Let me, let me ask you a more fun question. What's the most quote unquote far out space deal that you've seen? And, um, and what caused you, obviously, because I know, not to fund it? <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, there are a couple. Yuri Milner, I think, funded a flock of micro satellites that were have been sent on some long range. Is that, by the way, is that it? Is that what it calls? Is it a flock? Literally, yeah, literally a flock. They actually look like little birds. They're, they're absolutely tiny. Hmm. Um, we looked at an asteroid mining deal. I think asteroid mining is going to be enormous in like ten to twenty years. You can 
extract a lot of what we consider rare earth minerals uh, from from asteroids. You've just got to be able to get them home. You've got to be able to get to the asteroid, hang out on the asteroid, and then get them home. I've seen some pretty creative calculations on the price of some of the metals you can bring home. It's like, you know, you can find <laughs> $30 trillion worth of titanium, or I forget what the precious metal exactly. is. <laughs> okay, well, if it becomes, it's no longer a rare metal right. if you have $30 trillion worth of it. So you, you have like such huge amounts of these metals that are less common on, on the planet, but if you bring a ton back, then you actually end up affecting the price. Yeah, you just, you just got to figure out how to get it home. Like what does your ROI look like if you bring back, you know, a trillion dollars worth of platinum? <laughs> yeah. We also looked at, uh, there was a, data centers on the moon deal. There's a company that is, and they're, they're operating. They're, they're building these data centers that are basically going to be dropped on the moon. And the whole strategy is to produce operating assets and businesses that sit outside of any Earth-based jurisdiction. So it's basically a huge tax dodge in space to run your business. If you wanted your message delivered eight minutes later than they normally <laughs> would be on Earth, Boy, if we got a data center for you. Yeah. So one of the mo more interesting technologies that's enabling a huge amount, both for our companies and for companies like that, are um, laser optics in space. So, uh, you know, the, the, the successor to everything that we've, we've done in fiber optics on Earth uh, in, and, and that, that delivers the kind of low latency experience we have with the Internet has a has a future chapter in space-based comms to drive latency as low as possible. And several of our companies have deployed satellite uh, optical, laser optical links uh, in their constellations to move data to ground uh, at an at a impressive speed. Yeah, that's interesting. Did you see Umbrella Academy, Will? I did not. No. Uh, Jason, you saw it, right? Yeah. You think that guy actually lived on the moon? I mean, he's on there for a long time, right? Yeah. I mean, it's fantasy. So uh, that was fantasy. Yeah, it was. Uh, all right, all right, fine. Never mind. I thought, I, th I thought that was a documentary. Yeah, it was not a documentary. Never mind. All right, all right. Yeah. Let's get back to like, <laughs> let's get back to normal stuff. So, what applications are you most excited about that you think new space companies are enabling? Will I think the um, we're we're gonna experience an era of much much more precise awareness of changes on our planet. I'm talking about hour by hour awareness. I mean, the most obvious examples are a fall around weather prediction, including real-time guidance on changing conditions. In this era of climate change and extreme weather, that obviously has a great deal of value, but it has equal value in, in terms of questions of conflict, uh, where you're trying to anticipate uh, kind of potentially a, a movements that could could presage uh, um, uh, action by a, a party from a military standpoint, there's kind of going to be nowhere to hide uh, globally uh, from all the sensors and capabilities that are in space. And there are a lot of personal applications that may, may result from that. It has a kind of eye-in-the-sky eeriness to it from a privacy standpoint, um, but it can represent a lot of positive value for uh, the collective of, of humanity on Earth. That's super interesting. I was kind of excited about the ability to shoot a package really high, wait for <laughs> the Earth to turn, and then have it delivered literally overnight or less than overnight. Do you think yeah. that's going to ever be possible, Will? <laughs> well, the, the thing is, hypersonics are, you know, very much a, a real 
capability today. <laughs> so uh, will, it, will it get to the level of package delivery? No, I mean like directly to your front porch. I mean with that level Oops, of like precision. Giant, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Why can't – why have a courier when you can just let the earth turn? Right. It's the impact on your house. Yeah. Giant trebuchet is the way to think about it. <laughs> yeah. The biggest problem in hypersonics is actually thermal. It's uh, going that fast and in, in the upper atmosphere without breaking up. So definitely not like a cake that no. would melt a little bit. We're going to need a lot of uh, a lot of titanium from that asteroid. The frozen world. food, though. Yeah. <laughs> but it's cooked when it's delivered. Right. And you can get it That's true. just like actual Chinese food yeah. flung into space. From China. Cooked from China directly to your door. Yeah. No, we're, we're talking about glo global delivery. Can't help but veer off course. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I'm, I'm curious, Will. You know, we think about it in a certain way, there's the kind of rate of innovation and various levels of the stack kind of reaching a steady state. How close to a steady state on all of the various capabilities are we? Like, we're not going to have a $1 delivery to space, right? It's just going to, no matter what you're doing, in order to get, you know, assets in the sky and into orbit, it's going to be a certain baseline rate. And, and from there as well, the actual technical capabilities that we're launching mm -hmm. in terms of computing, networking, sensors, mm -hmm. where do you see things really settling down and, and over what timeline at, at each layer of the technical stack when we think about it? So I think we are, we are right on the cusp of a whole class of new space companies being able to fund their path from an innovation standpoint, entirely out of operating cash flow. And I think that that's been the promise of, of this sector for a long time. Uh, the space industry, the satellite industry certainly has been plagued by a lot of capital intensity historically. But as we've adopted the kind of um, cheap hardware, open architecture, defined value and software model that has worked in computing on Earth, as we've adopted that model in the space industry, we've driven a tremendous amount of cost out of the operating uh, model of these companies. So they should have a great deal of operating leverage. And so I think we can see a, a pretty continuous stream of innovation moving into space, space both in the form of, um, of software upgrades and in the form of next generation hardware, which is already quite cheap. And um, Starship, when it's operational from SpaceX, it's basically going to take another order of magnitude out of the cost of getting things to space, it's also going to redefine the size of the form factor of things that can go into space. And so I know for a fact that NASA is basically beginning to rethink the overall operating envelope of stuff that they put into space because the, the inside of Starship is 30 meters across. They can, they, they, they've got a huge amount of capacity there uh, to, to put larger structures in space. And, and that will open up manufacturing in space, more opportunities for space tourism, more opportunities for, uh, for real operating businesses to, uh, to, to, to move um, things in space. And we'll begin to see space-based manufacturing of semiconductors, which is going to unlock a new era of performance in that industry. So a lot changes as... Um, as we as we move to open architectures and larger form factors in launch. That's fantastic. Thank you, Will. I'm going to move to the uh, Gatling gun section of this uh, <laughs> podcast, which, you know, has become a regular form factor. It started yeah. out as something that we right. we were just kind of tinkering with, but Gatling gun. It's a state. 
it's a staple now. So it's going to happen in every podcast. And, you know, our listeners can look forward to this. Um, and this, these are, are, are space-themed questions that I'm going to get link on you with, Will. So, uh, okay. So, um, so anyway, let's, let's start with the first. I'll give you a softball. Like, what's your prediction on the f- year of the first moon colony? Oh, I'd say we're probably, you know, 2050, I would say, uh, in order just to have all of, all of the of the life support systems that we need. Yeah, I'd say we're 20, 25 to 30 years out. It's a good enough prediction. You're, you're more of an expert than I am. How about the year when we put a person on Mars? That will happen sooner. Uh, we're within, I'd say we're seven to 10 years from Mars. If I have somebody in mind that I'd like to put on Mars, could I expedite that? <laughs> There's a lot of nominations being, being yeah. offered for that. I got a small <laughs> list of people. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll the talk question about that. is whether you want them back. And if you don't want them back, it can be soon. Sounds yeah. like it's a list of people that don't need to come back. Yeah, I don't want to say that out loud, but yeah. All right, fine. All right, so uh, so if you scream in space, Will, does anyone actually hear you? I saw gravity. You saw gravity. Like it's it's pretty quiet up there. You don't get to hear anything, even with a Starlink system. <laughs> even with Starlink, okay. which is all, which is always listening, by the way. When do we get a real life Starship Enterprise? Oh boy, you know I think we're a lot depends on the propulsion problem. And can we translate kind of nuclear propulsion into a, a manageable form factor that we can um, that we can then build a structure around in space? So I'd say it's probably eighty to hundred years out is my guess. We need really vibrant in space manufacturing. Uh, we need large scale life support systems that we don't have. But yeah, I mean you can look at the component technologies and, and see a path. So I'll call it. 75 to 100 years. Wow, that's closer than I would have expected. All right, best interplanetary movie. I mean, I ha- I'm a Star Wars guy at heart. So uh, Star Wars, I was raised on Doctor Who and Star Wars. So that's where my heart lives. Right, that's the wrong answer. Spaceballs. <laughs> Spaceballs, definitely the best. Wormholes, real or not? Oh, wormholes, absolutely real. Any, uh, any black hole scientist will confirm that for you. It was about 300 in my backyard. So, and... <laughs> Everyone's in a big rain. You can see wormholes all day. All right. You're correct on old Yoda or baby Yoda? Old Yoda. Grogu's going to be pissed off. You know this. He might come and get you. Next episode of Mandalorian, there's going to be a reference to this podcast in here. All right. Species or aliens? Aliens. Anything that can have that many mouths come out of that many mouths is is, is a frightening thing. I know, but Natasha Henstridge. <laughs> All right, fine, fine. Let's not go there. Let's not go. Let's not is go. that her first appearance on our podcast? Kirk or Picard? Oh, Kirk. Yeah. Definitely Kirk. Okay. Best Star Trek episode, speaking of Kirk. Oh, The Trouble with Tribbles. Yes. No you doubt. You got that correct. You got it correct. Best villain, Vader or Khan? Ooh. You know, Wrath of Khan, I actually think is one of the the coolest movies ever. Those things that they put in their ears. I had nightmares about that for a long time. So I'll go with Khan. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I, I would say Khan too, but the new Khan, who looks just like our Jason Black over here, Benedict <laughs> Cumberbatch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it looks just like yeah. Jason. Although Jason's got white hair still. So I think that was true last podcast, still true this podcast. 
well, I think that's all I had. Anything you wanted to add, Jason? No, I think that was great. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right. We're going to call this one a wrap. Thank you, William. Thank you, Jason. Signing off here. Thank you, guys. Our listeners. Yeah. Shout out to uh, all of them. All of them. Every single one. I, no, 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 no. We just, uh, we do appreciate you guys. All right. Keep listening. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to R-E-P-O-V. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at RRE on Twitter, or shall I say X, or RRE.com. And on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. We'll see you next time.